This is the Nichols Patrick Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of November 7th, 2016. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Nichols Patrick CPE and your state society of CPAs. This week we're going to look at the following developments that came up. We have more fishing for preparers' credentials is taking place. We have a case where an employer's match created what the IRS decided was a material difference in the present value for deferred compensation purposes under Section 409 Cap A. The IRS released the retirement plan limits for 2017. A suspended corporation found that it was left without a means to challenge the IRS action. And signing checks did not make a taxpayer a responsible person under the trust fund recovery penalty. We've got some things coming up here shortly in the future. I just came back from a week where I was in, uh, where I was up in Twin Falls, Idaho, and then also did a, a session at the Pacific Tax Institute in Seattle and the Arizona Federal Tax Institute here in Phoenix. I'll be heading on the road this week to Boise on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, and then I'll be going Thursday and Friday. I'll be presenting down in Tucson. And then heading following that, I'll be over in Minneapolis. But coming up the end of the month, for those of you looking for some courses to sign up for, I will be presenting in Oklahoma City. I'll actually be down there for four days. Uh, the first three days, I'll be doing courses. Uh, that'll start on November 28th. I'm going to do a real, real estate partnerships, getting in, getting out, and getting taxed. On the 29th of November, I will be doing pass-through entities, advanced issues. And on the 30th of November, I'll be doing a course with tax-exempt organizations. These will all be at the Oklahoma Society offices in Oklahoma City. I will also then, the next day, be doing two sessions at the Oklahoma Tax Institute. That'll be in Norman, Oklahoma. And we'll be doing a couple of sessions there. I go there every year. The actual conference goes for the 1st and 2nd of December. Uh, I, however, on the 2nd of December, will be traveling. I will be in Albuquerque, New Mexico, doing a pair of sessions at the New Mexico Tax Conference. So I have a few conferences and things coming up. So if you're looking to sign up for some courses, there's lots of things coming up here towards the end of the month, beginning of next month. Uh, hope to see you at one of those locations. Now let's go to our developments. And the first one is unfortunately a news that we've heard quite a bit of recently, which is continuing. The IRS has issued a new news release about the latest phishing scam. This particular scam is looking to recover credentials to allow the use of e-services by various nefarious parties, who obviously would have some reasons to try to hijack your account. What's coming out now, and it's not unusual, they are attempting to kind of ride along with some of the changes that the IRS has announced they're going to be making in the e-services program and general increases in security. They also piggyback on some things that have been in the news recently. So what's happening today is that people are getting emails, preparers are getting emails uh, that effectively tell you that your information was stolen from certain user accounts in 2015 in, in attacks with a state-sponsored actor. So, I mean, we're kind of combining all the stories we've had this year from the election, from various other breaches, and from the IRS breaches to get this nice massive problem email that we supposedly have. It says that you will be asked to upgrade your e-service account to ensure the protection of your information. And to do the upgrade, they need your username and password. As you might guess, you're not going to be upgraded. Now, the IRS is actually doing some upgrading of e-service securities and has been sending you some emails on this. So they just hope you figure this is just the next step. You now need to log in, take care of it. It's also coming out just about the time you're being reminded that you have to renew your P10. 
So there's all kinds of reasons why this email will look legitimate. And let's be honest, a couple of things you always need to remember about emails. An email can be faked very easily. I can make an email look exactly like it came from the IRS with the logos and all the proper fonts. That's just simply not difficult. I can also make sure that when you click a link in email, you go somewhere other than where the email is telling you you're going to go. That also is a trivial thing to do. It's also trivial to obfuscate, shall we say, the from address in an email or even fake it entirely. That simply is not that difficult. So you have to be very, very, very cautious of such emails. Now, as the IRS says, realistically, you should never go to e-services except by going directly to the IRS's website and then clicking on the links on the website. Type into your browser, www.irs.gov. Uh, then you can go ahead and go to the e-services links on those pages. But don't go to e-services by taking a link in an email, even if that email claims to be from the IRS. Other things that they suggest you should worry about doing, uh, they suggest, obviously, uh, that you consider the recommendations the Security Summit has given us with regard to this information. That is to use robust security software. They ask you to use encryption to protect client data on your systems. Use strong passwords. Then they say and change them often. I somewhat disagree with the second part of that. My problem is if you have complex passwords that are changed every 90 days, what's going to end up happening is people are going to do things that are going to lower your security by writing those passwords down, posting them on the monitors, or doing other things that are just, or reusing passwords they use everywhere else. That's the way they're going to kind of try to make this work, all of which are a bad idea. Uh, so I've never been convinced. My theory is if they got in once, and you're not aware they were in, they're likely going to get your password back again the second time. So seems to me that the bigger problem is making sure you're not hijacked as opposed to changing the password, which might be a temporary inconvenience if you were hijacked. But I digress because that is the IRS's recommendation. Uh, they say recognize phishing emails and attempting to steal data. My take on that, train your staff to understand what a phishing email looks like and what the problems are. Never click on links or download attachments from suspicious emails. I would change that to say that you probably never want to click on links on any emails because remember, this email doesn't look suspicious. It looks like an IRS email. So don't just say, oh, it looks okay, I'll click it. Don't click links. Also, if you get an email with an attachment, I strongly recommend you do not download that attachment until you verify with the sender via means other than email that they had intended to send you an attachment of some sort. That is an Excel file, a Word file, a PDF. Uh, if you're not careful, your machine gets taken over. That's not all that difficult. And doing it via a tainted attachment or download is the way these things tend to happen. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, it happens in the real world. I've been aware of situations of clients that have been run into this problem, managed to click the wrong link, and suddenly they have a major problem. Also, be aware of any communications claiming to be the IRS that are from outside normal channels. The problem is you have to understand what normal channels are and that the IRS wouldn't actually click on that link. Unfortunately, it's a little tough for everybody to understand what all those options would be. Just be aware, this is not the first, nor will it be the last such attempt to take over your systems or gain your credentials. You need to become highly suspicious this year about everything coming at you, whether it appears to come from the IRS, your tax software vendor, or a client or a potential client. All of those are 
potential ways that the attackers can get into your system. Yeah, if they take over a client's machine, they can then send emails on behalf of the client, which will then attempt to take over your machine. Again, all kinds of problems. Be very careful in this area. Next up, Chief Counsel Advice 2016-45012, issued on November the 4th. This considers the issue of the case under the deferred compensation rules found in Internal Revenue Code Section 409 Cap A, and specifically under Regulation 1.409-1D1. The issue becomes a taxpayer in this case in 2014 uh, had decided to forego part of his 2015 compensation. In, if he did that, the employer agreed that three years later, they would pay him that 15 back plus a 25% kicker. But he had to work for them for all of those three years. If he left early, he would give up the kicker and the 15,000. Now, the problem is under 49A cap, 49 cap A regs, if you have a right to compensation and you give that up, that that cannot be treated normally as being subjected to a substantial risk of forfeiture, which means it would still be currently taxable. However, if there is a, if by doing that, you get paid more in the future in an amount that is materially greater than what you had been given initially, and that's based on present value, then that is considered to be an okay reason to defer and we won't tax the 15000 Now, that was a question before us that was being asked in this memo. Is this 25% kicker enough to satisfy the concept that, you know, we haven't paid excess? You know, we're not going to do the excess amount. Is that an appropriate amount? Can that work? And in this case, the IRS decided that, in fact, the memo decides that this is okay, that the 25% kicker did represent an amount that was materially greater, even on a present value basis, than what had previously been offered. So for that reason, the IRS ruled, you can go ahead and treat this as a deferral that does not violate the regulations in the 409 cap A, and that also serves to truly defer the income into the three years into the future. Next up, we have IRS notice 2016-62. This is where the IRS announced the new requalified and retirement plan IRA options for 2017. For the most part, items either didn't change or they changed very modestly. But we did have the big items make some minor changes this year. For instance, the maximum annual benefit that can be, a, that can be paid out from a defined benefit pension plan, which we can fund for, in 2017 will go to 215000 from 210000 that it was at last year. The maximum contribution, the maximum funding amount for a defined contribution plan for any single participant's account will rise to $54,000. As always, that is before any catch-up contribution. And the annual amount of compensation you consider for your qualified plan will go up to $270,000 from $265,000. Not changing is the amount of the catch-up contribution. If you have that in your plan, you're over age 50 and eligible plan at $6,000. The amount you could electively defer to 401k, 457s, and 403b plans will remain at $18,000. The definition of a highly compensated employee, that the numeric definition, will stay at 120. However, the key employee earnings limitation will go from $170,000 to $275,000 in 2017. There'll be no change in the simple deferral limitation. It'll stay at $12,500. 
the simple catch-up contribution remains at 3,000, and the SEP contribution limit remains at 600, where the compensation limit is to say, where if you earn 600, that counts as a year of service for purposes of determining if you participate in the SEP or if you have to receive a contribution. The maximum IRA contribution before catch-up remains at 5,500. Now, various items, the phase-outs change slightly. In fact, generally, the phase-out ranges uh, go up by $1,000. So if you're covered by an employer plan and you're filing single or out-of-household, your deductible IRA contribution will phase out between 62 and 72,000. That's up from 61 and 71,000 in 2016. A married, married couple filing joint return will phase out from $99,219,000. That's up from $98,218,000 in 2016. Uh, married filing separate, that one's not changing. Remember, that doesn't go up. That's from zero to 10,000, always will be. Uh, if your spouse is covered by a plan, but you're not, then the phase out range will go up by $2,000 this year. So it's 186,000 to is the phase out range for your deductible contribution. Back in, in 2016, that today it's 184 to $194,000. The Roth IRA maximum contribution phase out begins at the same level as that. So 186, again, up by 2000. That's for a married couple filing joint. For all individuals except married filing separate, it goes between 118,000 goes to $118,000, begins the phase out range up from $117,000. Again, these are all the ones that IRS has published this year. So we have our published limitations for the year. A corporation that's had its charter suspended by the state that gave it its charter. It turns out that could be a problem if you have to dispute with the IRS. This one deals with Urgent Care Registries, Inc. versus Commissioner. This is Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2016-198, issued on November the 2nd. Now, this is a case where the corporation had ceased operations. But it turns out they ceased operations and began operating as a proprietorship. They did so, though, after having a number of years where they had failed to file a tax return. The IRS prepared substitutes for returns for them for the years in question. They also went after the taxes for payroll taxes and income tax returns that had been filed, but which no tax had been paid. The taxpayer requested a collection due process hearing. The hearing was held, uh, didn't go in the taxpayer's favor. So the, uh, the appellate conferee ruled that the IRS could proceed with its levy. Now the taxpayer tries to dispute this in tax court, trying to get their day in court. Turns out there's a problem. If your charter has been suspended, you may not be able to file in tax court. And I say may not because the rules for when, you, when your corporation is deemed to have existence and can act in tax court has to be referenced by state law. In this case, the corporation was chartered in California, so we look to California law. California does not allow a corporation whose status has been suspended to file legal actions. As such, the tax court agreed with the IRS that the party that filed this petition had no standing to file because it's not allowed to file. Therefore, and by the way, we're past 90 days, uh, because they did not have standing when it was filed, the taxpayer now has lost their ability to take this matter into the tax court. If you are filing returns, if you are, you know, if you basically are closing up a corporation, please be very careful to make sure all the tax matters are taken care of. 
Also, if your charter is revoked for some reason by the state in question, you need to get that charter back in place if you have an IRS problem, because if you're going to ever want to go to tax court, you absolutely have to be able to show that you have standing to file suit in your state. In this case, the corporation did not have such standing. Therefore, unfortunately, the corporation was stuck having to just eat this additional assessment and could not challenge it and challenge the IRS's finding in the tax court. Final one this week, we're looking at a responsible person case. This is the case of Fitzpatrick versus Commissioner, Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2016-199. Now, initially, this is a, you know, one of these, the company was having financial trouble. The payroll taxes didn't get paid because they were paying other vendors. The company finally ceases operation and the IRS now is looking to collect those payroll taxes. Obviously, the corporation is defunct. There's going to be nothing there. So they started casting about for a responsible party. In this case, they found Christina Kirkpatrick, or Fitzpatrick, I should say. Now, initially, Christina has some really bad facts that would cause you, you know, if I'm representing somebody, be very worried that this might stick. First thing is, Christina had signature authority over the checking account for the restaurant. Now, as we would say, that's normally, you know, that's not good because that gives you the power to pay the taxes. If you, if your signature can cause check to be issued, then in theory, you could see the taxes were paid by simply signing over the payment. It's even worse though, because not only did she have the authority to sign checks, she signed every single payroll check. So Christina signed payroll checks. Well, that's also a bad fact, shall we say. And, that, and the question is, now we've got her signature on checks that are paying bills, you know, the employee's wages, that are being paid in preference to the old trust fund taxes that have yet to be paid. And finally, she selected and arranged to hire the payroll service that was doing the payroll for the restaurant. So on paper, it appears that Christina is somebody involved in the company. She's signing checks regularly, and she has the authority to sign checks on the company. Well, that normally is, you know, end of story, you're in big trouble. However, there are facts here. And it's always, as the court points out, it's not just a mechanical test. We have to look at the facts of the situation. In this case, Christina, she, her husband and her had been one of the two owners, I should say her husband had been one of the two owners. And it doesn't appear that they were very directly involved. He didn't appear to be involved in this virtually at all. And she was involved primarily, uh, she came in during the startup phase because they needed somebody to take care of a few things. So she did, including setting up the payroll service. Also, uh, they used paychecks as their payroll service. And paychecks, if you're used to them, you know, will deliver your paychecks. Now, they wanted to issue paychecks on Tuesday. And they had a very short run. So paychecks would run them on Monday. Tuesday morning, they were ready. Tuesday morning, paychecks would deliver the checks. The problem was Tuesday morning when paychecks went to deliver checks, there was nobody at the restaurant because the restaurant wasn't open that time of day. So what they started doing was delivering the payroll checks to Christina's home. It was delivered there because Christina was home. Uh, the general manager who ran the restaurant had Tuesdays off, so he wasn't there. So Christina would get the checks from paychecks. She would sign the checks from paychecks. And then later in the day, she would have them delivered to the restaurant to be given to the employees. 
She did not actually look at the reports, nor was it her responsibility to review the reports from paychecks. She also didn't send paychecks to payroll information. Uh, that was all done by the general manager at the restaurant. The general manager had big plans for this restaurant. In fact, and he had big expensive plans. He paid high dollar. He got in famous entertainers, which he hoped would bring customers in the door. Well, he certainly spent enough money on this to bring customers in the door. However, it didn't really seem to work to bring them in the door, at least not in the door, and to buy enough stuff to make to keep the restaurant afloat. So eventually, the general manager discovered that uh, suppliers who had had checks bounced that had been given to them to pay for things were refusing to deliver to him unless he paid them in cash or a cashier's check. Well, he needed some cash, therefore liquid cash to deal with this. He would start, he was taking money out of the till to pay for this stuff. So he'd record that, but he'd never go to the bank. And he would also have certain checks written. In order to get, now eventually this bounce check hit a paychecks payroll tax deposit. So paychecks went to the account to pick up uh, the payroll taxes for that week, which of course was, you know, not a huge amount, as I recall, about $1,800. Yeah, 1809.88, and then their invoice for 328.35, and those two bounced. If you've ever dealt with a payroll service before, you know bouncing checks on a payroll service is a quick way to get them to stop working with you, certainly stop making the tax deposit. So apparently the general manager arranged with paychecks that paychecks would continue to write the checks that would be drawn on their account, but paychecks was no longer going to ha handle the tax payments. Well, it turns out nobody handled the tax payments. So the tax payments were never made. Now, Christina was not aware of this, you know, because she just got paychecks on Tuesday. She delivered them on Tuesday when the general manager wasn't there. The general manager was a person who, under, who knew that none of this was happening. The restaurant continued to operate from November of 2008 under this, under this system through early 2011 when they finally had to give up operations. They transferred the restaurant back to the franchisor who began running it. Sometime after that, the IRS came knocking, uh, trying to get their payroll taxes collected. And the IRS determined in their mind that Christina was the person. Now the tax court judge discovered, tax court judge didn't believe it worked that way. He pointed out that Christina had a disabled son who had severe medical conditions that required constant supervision. Christina, therefore, was not spending time at the restaurant. She was spending almost all of her time 24-7 taking care of this child who needed constant care. The kid took 50 pills a day. Uh, he needed assistance for any type, had very limited mobility. So Christina was taking care of all this. It also had a negative effect on her health. So she was rarely at the restaurant. While she was apparently, you know, had signature authority and was the spouse of an owner, which the IRS said, you know, based on all those things, she was effectively an officer. In reality, she didn't do anything. In fact, the tax court criticized the IRS for not pursuing the general manager or the other owner as responsible parties because they seemed to be the ones who knew that the taxes weren't being paid and who simply didn't take any actions and apparently decided to testify nicely for the IRS about how Christina was responsible for all of this uh, but the tax court found that those two weren't credible. The court wasn't happy. The court found that Christina, therefore, was not responsible for this payment. 
I think the big advantage Christina had was she never wrote a paychecks, never signed paying a bill at a time when she was aware there were unpaid trust fund taxes. That makes it a lot more difficult for the IRS to carry the day. So in this case, Christina won. That said, it is always dangerous to have signature authority over a bank account unless you are sure the entity is staying current on their payroll taxes because this case, if nothing else, illustrates the IRS loves to go looking there to try to find somebody to collect from. Well, we're into the month of November. You know, the Thanksgiving holidays and everything are rapidly approaching. Be sure and go ahead and during the month of November, check out your state society CPE offerings. We're here, you know, we've got this. We all know we tend to like our get our education between October 15th and December 15th. Well, you know, you're now running down to less than a month and a half, actually just over a month before that December 15th date hits and everybody checks out through the end of the year. So you want to be sure, take a look at that continuing education, sign up. Your state societies have lots of courses they're offering right now on a number of topics. Be sure and check the catalogs, sign up, and hopefully we'll see you there. One of us here with Nichols Patrick or any of those others who are doing this type of lecturing for the state societies. Just be sure to check. They're a great resource to keep up to date on what's been changing in your profession. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of November 7th, 2016. You can catch our updates regularly on our website at currentfederaltaxdevelopments.com. You can also download a PDF with articles of, with all of today's topics uh, on from the website there if you go where we have our videos posted. Or you can send questions and comments to me, Ed Zollers at currentfederaltaxdevelopments.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at, at Ed Zollers. Now, next week, I'm hopefully going to be recording again on Saturday. It becomes one of those weird weekends where I arrive back in, uh, you know, sometime Sunday night, driving back up from Tucson, or I should say sometime late Friday night, sometime Friday night, driving up from Tucson, not terribly late, hopefully. And then I end up having to leave early Sunday morning to get to Minneapolis. So unlike this weekend, where I have mainly two full days before I disappear, uh, I'm going to drive down to Tucson early and fly out of there. But basically, next week, I only have the one day, but I'm hopeful that everything will be written and I'll be able to record the podcast on Saturday and get it out on schedule. But check, we'll try to, we'll certainly try to have something up by the 14th for you to watch for. And as I said, hopefully I'll see you all out somewhere at one of the courses I'm going to be at over the next few weeks. Take care. We'll see you next week here on the current federal tax developments.